Well, praise the Lord for the opportunity to sing together songs that lift our hearts to the heavens and make us think more deeply about truths that maybe we otherwise might not have. What an opportunity to sing with you, to listen to your voices, and to gather together. If you would, open your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, Paul is referring back to chapter 3 here. Obviously, he starts with the word therefore, which is drawing us back to the argument he's been making. That is speaking in reference to this ministry, this glorious ministry, spirit ministry of the gospel. That's his throwback here. Therefore, since we have this gospel ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let us pray. Our Father, we read this text and we are overwhelmed when we understand what is being said here. We are a weak, fragile people who need you, as the song says, every hour. Lord, we need you even now. Lord, I would ask that you would assist me to proclaim your glory. I ask that you move in our hearts, each of us here, that we might listen to your word, that we would believe that you are, and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
the central theme here of chapter four, as I understand it, is the issue of losing heart. What is it to lose heart? The Greek word here means to give in to fear, to lose courage, or this one really gets to it, or to behave like a coward. Maybe to break it down a little bit more in a, in a way, because maybe that sounds a little too dramatic and you don't tend to think of the issues that you're struggling with in life in such dramatic terms. You don't think of, of many of the battles you're losing with sin in dramatic ways. So let me break it down a little bit differently and to say this, to lose heart would be to stop believing that you in Christ can succeed. At least one guy agrees with me. <laughs> yeah, to lose heart is you just stop believing that you can actually win. And think that through. If you're honest, you know, you have that initial zeal as a new believer. You're fired up. You got it figured out. You got your why. You know why you're doing what you're doing. You're out there. You're, you're ready to go. And then somewhere along the way, as a child of God, you start to get weary. You start to stall out. The cares and concerns of this world start to slow you down. And you start looking around. Like Peter in the waves, you lose that focus on Christ. One wave after another is coming in, crashing into you, and you're tempted, trial after trial, to just move your eyes just a bit more to shift your gaze away from the author and perfecter of your faith. In almost every superhero movie, there is a moment that screenwriters call a dark night of the soul. There is a time where that hero must question why he does what he does. Like, what's it all for? What's the point? What's his why? why? Why is Batman so convinced he has to spend his life doing this? Why is the hero so convinced that he's right in doing what he's doing? He has to be broken down to asking fundamental questions. To asking the question of, what are you doing with your life? Why? Why are you doing it? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you do anything? What is the thing that drives, that pushes you forward? And I think quite often, we completely lose sight of that. This is that subtlety of the shift of the gaze as the waves break over us. Paul here in 2 Corinthians, he gives us the big reason, though, for why we do what we do. For Paul, he, he makes it clear through chapter 3 primarily, you have to go back and read this in order to stick with his argument. Now, we've lost a lot of this, I know, in our Twitter age. You know, we want a soundbite, and that's it. I just want the, the, the takeaway sentence that I can tweet and move on. But Paul, that's not how Scripture works. And it's one of the dangers in our age of just always being on TikTok or something like that and, and soundbite information. You need to be able to follow a sustained argument. And Paul's argument throughout this really is that the glory of Christ is awesome. What is the reason for his being? What is the reason for his, his doing, for his rising in the morning, for his walking down the road, for his, his constant evangelistic spirit, all these things? What is his why? 
His why is that the glory of Christ is awesome and he wants everyone to see it. Not super complicated, is it? He's realized the glory of Christ is all surpassing in its value. The wonder of just knowing Jesus Christ, as he says in Philippians 3, is is worth sacrificing everything, including his health, including his retirement plan, including his prestige, including everything that we tend to run after. Paul has decided that the glory of Christ is truly awesome. And when I say awesome, I mean it in the true Webster Dictionary sense. That awe-inspiring, mouth-open, I'm overwhelmed by what is happening right now sense of the word. The glory of Christ is truly awesome. And Paul definitely lives his life as though he wants everyone else to see it. Most of us have this experience various times in life. We see something so incredible and so overwhelming, and then we try to share it with other people, and they don't really care. You know, I mean, your family pictures. <laughs> Let's be real. Right? Your family pictures. Generally speaking, people be like, ah, and they move on. I don't even look at my family pictures that much. Right? I mean, like, oh, that's a good one. You know, and usually the ones I like, this drives Priscilla nuts, is when one of the kids is doing something absurd. It's, it's not a good picture, but I like it. It's a memory that sticks in my head. Yeah. And try to, trying to pass on that shine to someone else, it really just doesn't catch. But it doesn't stop me. I don't know if that's you, but it doesn't tend to stop me. I still keep smiling about it. I still am willing to share uh, I think a lot of Christians, we have gotten to a point where we, we believe the glory of Christ is awesome and we want to share it and we share it with somebody and they don't care. And then we're like, oh man. And then we go home and cry about it and act like it's just give up. If you truly believe that the glory of Christ is that awesome, you don't give up. This is the central hub, the epicenter of your life. That's what it is to be gripped by the awesomeness of the nature of who Christ is and what he's forgiven us from. How can you sing it as well? Especially that last verse. How do you sing that without feeling it? My sin, all the bliss, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Look, friend, in Christ, you're not guilty. Do you think about that? Do you let that truth wash over you? Look, you know you. As much as you might suppress certain things that you think and have said and done in your life, you, in the, in the dark times, you know how guilty you are. And then to, to come to a truth like that, my sin, not, not part of it. The whole, it's nailed to the cross, it's gone. How awesome is that? And only because of Christ, the work of God on our behalf, to set us free from our sin that we might walk in newness of life. That central idea of the awesomeness of Christ and the desire to share it is the idea that carries Paul through what we would consider impossible obstacles. And further, it pushes him to clarify truths to a people who don't want to hear it. 
It pushes Paul not just to be excited about truth, but to make sure other people, other believers actually get it. He realizes the Corinthians, and this is what I think Paul struggles with. This is why he spent so much time with them. This is why he writes them various letters. Paul is convinced that they are being misled. And when you are misled, you will ultimately end up losing heart. The degree to which you will suffer in life really is determined by how much you fail to square truth with reality. Um, me and my kids the other night were watching a movie called Interstellar. I don't know if you've seen it, space travel, all that kind of stuff. There's a scene in there, though, when they're tr- this bad guy's trying to line up. The movie's like eight years old. If you haven't seen it, if I'm spoiling it, too bad. Anyway, there's a scene in there where a bad guy's trying to line up his shuttle with a, uh, what is that thing called, a space station. He's trying to lock the two things together. And it doesn't really line up quite right. It's right there, but it doesn't lock on perfectly right. And because it doesn't lock on perfectly right, the airlock opens when he, when he tries to get into the, the space station, and it sucks him out, kills him, causes destruction and everything. That is in many ways what happens to us. When we don't line up truth and reality, when our philosophy, you might say, doesn't line up with reality, we, in, we end up disillusioned. If you look back at the ancient philosophers of former times, each guy would come along, Socrates followed by Plato, by Aristotle, by Epicurus, and so on and so forth, the Stoics, and so on and so forth. Each one of them comes along and said, the last guy didn't really line up philosophy and reality. He missed it. Let me show you where he missed it. And I'm here to tell you all of them are wrong. You don't need to spend your life reading all the philosophers. You can if that's kind of a hobby and you enjoy that, but you're going to just find out where they're wrong. Once you try to line up philosophy, their idea of how life works with reality, the scripture is the true philosophy. It is what makes sense of reality as we see it, as we deal with it. You end up disillusioned with God because you fail to line up these things. You fail to bring them together properly. This is why we fight many of the battles we do at our church. Much of the ministry that my dad has in writing, think on these things and stuff like that. It's not because you want to be right, for goodness sake. If that's driving you, then you're, you're all kinds of weird. You've got all kinds of pride in there. But the goal is for people to understand truth properly, to expect the right thing of God so they are not disillusioned with God. I have a friend... Um, She's been told by the prophets certain things are going to happen. She's been told by so-called people who have holy connections with God that receive words from God, certain things that God's going to do in her life, and it's never happened. Years and years, never happened. And so this woman is disillusioned in many ways with God because God told me he's going to do something, and he's not delivering. So the truth and and reality are not lining up. But see, the problem is she's expecting the wrong thing from God. God never spoke to this so-called prophet. 
God did not reveal its truth to that person in a special way where they're hearing a voice from God and sharing it with her. Many people are very disillusioned with God in subtleties, not completely, they're not out of the church, they're not gone, but they're disillusioned, they're losing heart, they're failing to believe that they can succeed. So, how is it that we keep from losing heart here from Paul's examples that he gives us throughout 2 Corinthians 4? Even though you've lined up truth and reality, you can still get kind of washed out, can't you? I know in my own life, um, there the subtleties of Satan and the, the ideas that get in our head that, that drift us away from the Lord are very simple. And a lot of times it's not a dramatic thing. Priscilla and I have talked about this many times. There's a, there's a tendency to just be content with a C average, if you know what I mean. There's a tendency to do your best and do your utmost for God's highest for a season and then realize it's not rewarded as you expected or something like that. And so then you go, you know what? Nobody really notices I'm doing like as, as the best work I can possibly do. Nobody really seems to care. So I'll just do a C. And when I do a C and nobody notices, you kind of like, well, what's the point? What, what, what's the point? And you start to give up on the idea. You start to become hopeless. That many times is how we lose heart. We fail to see why we really need to keep on going. Paul gives us a bunch of reasons here why we should not, as children of God, lose heart. This ought not be named among us. Number one, number one reason why we should not lose heart. If you like lists, if you like that sort of thing and note-taking, you're going to love it today. We don't lose heart because, number one, we have, as he said back in verse one, this ministry of the Spirit. We have gospel ministry. You got a mission. You got a job to do. While you're at, the, at work, it's not time to worry about all those things that are wearing you out. It's time to get the job done. Amen. He said in verse one there, if you recall, he said, since we have this ministry, we, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. Secondly, in verse 2, he says, um, we don't lose heart because we walk in sincerity and truth. The false teachers that had gotten in among the Corinthians were not walking in sincerity and truth. They're walking and they're talking a lot and they've deceived a lot of people into thinking they're a big deal and Paul needs to be discounted. They've come to that truth, but they're not walking in sincerity and truth and Paul knows it. So he doesn't lose heart because he's the real deal. Look, I know I'm the real deal. Before God, I know who I am. I know my actions. I have a purity of heart. And therefore, I don't give up because my hope isn't based upon people's reaction. It's based upon God's opinion of me. That drives me. That keeps me from losing heart. Thirdly, don't lose heart because, verse 4, I once was blind, but brother, now I see. You got to return to that day by day, friend. You got to return to that simple reality. You were blind, but God intervened. God came into, invaded, gloriously invaded your life. 
And now you see, now you see the glory of Christ. So I don't lose heart. I can keep my eyes fixed on him. Fourth, I don't lose heart. We ought not lose heart because we don't preach ourselves anyway. Our message is Christ, verse 5. If you're going to mock Paul, if you're going to come at him and discredit him, that's fine. Paul's not that worried about his own uh, clout. He's not worried about his own media presence, if you will. That's not wearing him out. What he's worried about is that they actually receive the message of Jesus Christ in purity. And these false teachers are bringing it with an impurity. Doesn't that drive you nuts when some false teacher has a huge audience and they're deluding people and you're sitting there listening to it and you're going, man, this guy's telling them enough truth to keep them hanging on, but he is lying about a hundred other things. Paul doesn't lose heart because he's not preaching himself. He's preaching Christ. That's in verse five. Verse six, he's pointing out that we don't lose heart because we are empowered by Christ, regenerated people don't do this. Verse six, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness, that creative work, all was dark and then God spoke, let there be light. That same creative statement is spoken over a regenerated soul. You come to Christ, what is it that happens? You don't feel sometimes that it was all that dramatic when you got saved, especially if you were young when it happened. And you fail to see what really happened. Well, there was something dramatic that happened, a creative work to bring you to new life. You were reborn, friend. Hang on to that truth. I was not reborn for sin. I ought to consider my members dead to sin and alive to righteousness. I don't lose heart because I'm empowered by Christ Number six, number six reason why not to lose heart is because we are, as a result of that empowerment from God, as that rebirth from God, we are humble. As a result of what God has done in us, can you, I mean, the idea that God Almighty, and the more you know your theology, the more you know God, the more you're humble that he cares the more you understand God truly for who he is, for who his word has revealed him to be, the more you don't understand why he would bother with you at all. The deeper the theology goes, the higher the praise gets. The more you know him, the more you stand in awe. Because why? Like, what am I? As David says, and what is my house that you would be mindful of me? I mean, the earth and the, the universe is not large enough to contain him. And the more we understand even about science, the more we're blown away by that. From what we, gra- we gather, the universe, is, the created universe as we know it, is at least 16 billion light years across. That's a number that doesn't even make sense. And it can't contain God. And God cares about you down to how many hairs are on your head. Wow. What are we talking about? What love is this that you would be mindful of me? So what does that do in us? Man, if that doesn't make you humble, you have understood the gospel, you have understood yourself, and you have understood God wrongly. You know, the thing is, 
Speaking of this sixth reason, that is that we as a result are humble. When you think about it, it's really hard to hurt a humble person, to give them an insult. If they're truly humble, it just doesn't hurt that much. I heard something I thought was really interesting the other day. This guy's, okay. Tucker Carlson did an interview apparently with Mike Tyson, you know, two savant saints, of course. Anyway, I, I just thought this was, this was really good to hear. Tucker Carlson said he did an interview with Mike Tyson, and he said, Mike, you know, um, people are going to criticize you. He said, I, you know, people love you. You're a very famous person, but a lot of people are going to criticize you. He says, I'm sure people come up and they say awful things about you, and they, they say you did this, that, and the other. And he goes, yeah. Yeah. He goes, so how do you handle that? And Mike Tyson came across this little nugget of, of wisdom. He said, you know, the thing is, when, when I think I'm a big deal, I get mad. But when I remember I'm a nobody, it's okay. What? It drives me nuts sometimes when a guy like Mike Tyson can get some truth that a Christian isn't willing to drill down in their own thinking. Look, I'm, I'm, Paul says just a few pages from this, I'm nobody. He compares himself to just a, a servant in a field. He compares himself to an under rower slave in a galley ship. If you don't know what that is, just remember Charlton Heston and Ben-Hur down there doing this move, right? Nobody cares about those people down there. And that's what Paul says he is. I'm nothing. I'm no one to, to build a monument to. I'm just a guy that God showed grace to. And I'm excited about that reality and I want to share it. That's it. I'm a tool being used in a field. A humble person is hard to hurt. A humble person doesn't tend to lose heart. Now, Paul takes all six of those things that he just mentioned that I highlighted about how he doesn't lose heart. And now he takes theoretical stuff and he pushes it down into real life. We all know big talkers. We all know people who have great theories about things. But the real problem is when you take those theories and you put them to the test, verses 8 through 11, go there. He said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Read the book of Acts for more. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Paul's not just talking about theory. He's saying in his own body, he can show you that you don't have to lose heart. You don't have to get weary on the trail. Paul's theories hold up in reality, the child of God firmly squared on truth can, hear me, can withstand the fires of temptation and testing. This is one of the things that's so fascinating to me about reading something like Fox's Book of Martyrs or, read, or following Open Doors. If you follow that, we're talking about persecuted church and these other ministries like that. I love seeing saints who don't bend to the pressure all around them. I love seeing and hearing the stories of saints who wouldn't buckle regardless of what you did to them. You could skin them alive and they didn't move. You could smoke them out and they, they didn't quit. 
One of my favorite stories is of a, a group of saints around 300 strong, about like this room full of people. And the, the Romans at the time wanted them to renounce faith in Christ, and they in unison basically joined arms and jumped in a pit of lime together and died together. No, we're not buckling. We're not going to bend. We will be faithful to Christ to the end. There is the kind of philosophy that I want that doesn't bend, can withstand the fire of testing, is battle-tested, not just theory. After verse 11 and 12, Paul returns to this theme, his theme of not losing heart, and we see another reason why we shouldn't lose heart, which is found in verse 12. Paul keeps moving forward because he's doing it for others. All of you have had your moments in life where maybe you're kind of a weakling, maybe you're kind of a wimp, but the occasion called for you to be tough and you had no option but to be tough. You had no choice because you were the one people were looking to, whether that's with your kids or at work or something like that. We have a lot of people that work in the health care world here. You see some frightening things and deal with some stuff. Uh, talk to any of our nurses, pretty much, and they'll give you some stories that'll make you squirm, especially while you eat. I've heard some doozies over the years that actually crack me up, and they also lead me to never trust medical people. Because they will say something like, oh, no, no, it's fine. You're fine. Your intestines are on the outside, but it's fine. No big deal. You'll just need a stitch. No big deal. There's a time when you have to be tough. And many times that's not, that's because you in your own mind realize, no, 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 this person's going to lose it if I don't keep it together. This person is going to lose their grip on reality if I don't stay calm. And so I've got to keep it calm. Paul is able to keep moving because not only is he looking uh, to Christ through all of this, but he's also looking at them. He set his eyes beyond his own life. And everybody, everybody with a brain sees the value of this. The world is dying for a cause. Our world that is in America, people are dying to have something worth living for. They're so eager to have some cause. They want to save the earth, whatever that means. You know, they, they, they want to save the planet. They, they, they want to fight un- injustice as they see it and all these kinds of things. They want a cause. And when there isn't a good cause, we just invent one anyway. Why is it that we do that? Because we want something bigger than ourselves. We want something more vast, a dream that, that goes beyond us. I believe that is rolled up in the, in the idea of how God has made us to pursue such things, to realize that eternity is set in our heart. And because we find that the the greatest joys many times are when we're not thinking of ourselves. So Paul doesn't lose heart for all these reasons, plus uh, he's doing it for them. He labors on because he's doing it for them. He knows that if he fails, if he stumbles, he knows the discrediting work that will happen. You, friend, 
as you have told people about Jesus Christ, as you've proclaimed his truth in all walks, in all areas of your life, you now come to a testing ground. That might be your health. That might be a financial situation. That might be traffic. I don't care what it is. You come to an impasse, a, a test, and you have people watching you to see whether your philosophy lines up with your reality. We must connect our theology to everyday living or we miss its value. The eighth reason why Paul says we don't lose heart is because in verse 13, to sum it up in a word, because we believe. It says in verse 13, 13, I believed, therefore I spoke, which harkens back to Psalm 116 where David speaks of the same thing. Look, I believe something and you, you better know I'm going to talk about it. Amen. If I truly believe something, Deep down in my bones, it's going to come out. An evangelism program is fine, but sometimes we can depend on that rather than the, the inner work of God. Look, I got to talk because if I don't speak, like Paul says, woe unto me if I don't. I've got to speak. I've got to proclaim. Good luck trying to hold me back, you might say. Verse 13, he said, I believe, therefore I spoke, and thus we ought to do the same. He says, we also believe, therefore we speak. What is it that he knows about? He knows about the, what he's entrusted to Christ and that he will do the same work for them as you see in the, the verses following that. And then finally, number nine, why is it we don't lose heart? Because Paul wanted them, he wanted to see more and more people praise God. If you get down here to... Verse 15, he says, all, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Isn't it awesome to be gathered with God's people, not sitting and just having to watch a, a video of this, but to be with God's people and hear other people's voices, even if they don't hit the right note. Just the sheer fact that they, they are trying, that they're glorifying God, that they're, they're praising his name. Paul wants to see that. That's what we long for in the return of Christ, to see the whole earth magnify Christ as he rightly deserves. Amen? We long to see that. We live to see that. Paul's saying, look, I don't lose heart because that's what I'm aiming for. A vast array of saints praising the name of God. I don't lose heart. Because of that, therefore, now we reach the culmination of his argument in verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Bringing his whole argument together from two chapters at least. He says, put all that together. And that means I don't stop believing I can succeed in Christ. It means when I'm feeling depressed, when I'm losing my way, when I'm getting lost on the trail, I return to these truths to find my way again. I refuse, you might say, to lose heart. He then says in verse 16 and 17, he now draws out this dichotomy of thought. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. Brother, the older you get, the more you see that, right? Right? Boy, is your outer self decaying. Just look at yourself, right? If you dare. You got one of those body length mirrors at your house like we do? Do you ever stumble in front of that when you're not fully clothed and you're like, woo, man, is the outer man decaying, right? You can amen that one. 
right? I mean, not what I used to be. Right? That, that's definitely true. That You don't put confidence in that. The outer man is decaying. And for those of you too young to really vibe with that, you just wait. <laughs> Time's coming. Don't be all proud. Like, I don't know what that is. You will. Just hold on. Yet, now he's, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. If you want to see the, the bleak outlook for getting old, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And he illustrates it. And you're like, man, this is bleak. Yep. But faith shines through that. In the midst of everything Paul talked about in verses 8 through 11, in all the trial and tribulation, what Paul is saying is, look, friend, I'm not breaking down, and neither should you. Can you imagine how broke up Paul must have been? Some of us whine about our health problems, and I, you know, or if you got chronic pain, you really think Paul didn't have that? Read his life. He talks about bearing in his body the scars of following Christ. This guy is broken up. He's probably always in some form of back and nerve pain. He's been beaten. I'm out of time, so I got to just motor on. But you get the point. Paul's outer self is definitely falling apart. But he's like, look, but the light in my eyes is not extinguished. I'm still running. And you should be too. Those kind of examples are contagious, aren't they? They're infectious. You see that kind of person and you get fired up and you say, I want that faith. See, we have this goofy idea in our brain that holiness is boring, but man, when you see the real thing, when you see the real thing, man, you want it. Wow, do you want that? I want to be that guy who's eaten up with the glory of God, and it seems like he's not concerned with the things of this life. For momentary light affliction is producing for us. How can Paul keep going as he's going? Because he has an eternal perspective. The God, he's looking at life through the eyes of God. By human eyes, Paul is a failure. Not now. We look back and you know he's elevated and he's got buildings in his name and all that stuff. But at the time, Paul is a failure. He gave up the prestige and the honor, all the stuff that he could have had. He could have been a, a big dog in Israel. And he gave all of that up to, for what? To be named among slaves and nobodies. People that didn't many times want him. He gets beat up from town to town and ends up getting his head cut off. In the eyes of the world, he's nobody. But in the eyes of God, Paul was one of whom the world was not worthy. Momentary, light affliction. There ain't nothing about what Paul's going through through human eyes that looks momentary or light. Nothing. And those pains and those sufferings. Outer man decaying, inner man being renewed. Momentary is contrasted with eternal. Light is contrasted with weight. Light affliction, he then gets to the eternal weight of glory. And he says, look, there's no comparison. There's just no comparison. When you put them on a scale, there's no, there's no reason to even do it. It's like putting a feather on one side of a scale and gold on the other. Come on. This is silly, is Paul's point. He is able to keep moving because he's not looking at that which is seen. But he's looking to the unseen. The things which are seen, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Therefore, we will not 
lose heart. If we keep our eyes on these words and follow this example. Brother, sister, don't lose heart. You were not born to a spirit of timidity, but of courage. Courage is needed in every decision. At the heart of every decision, there is a, there is a courageous choice that has to be made. Don't lose heart. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for our time together today. I thank you for your word and its sufficiency to give us all that we need for life and godliness. May we believe, and Lord, help us with our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.